Previously on Adventures Weekly. I thought I might actually reveal to you where my uh, studio is today. Yeah. Hey! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey Zeus, Renato, thanks for joining us. Yay! We have never been in such a situation. Jump into the coach boat and they hug each other and they celebrate together because it's such a teamwork. 10th of April. My name's Nick Douglas. Lovely to be here with you as always. It's just that now we have to be um, super conscious um, that, that we're producing more waste and we've got to be better at um, giving it a second use. The amazing Hannah Mills. We were going to try and pledge to uh, make these changes. And then we thought actually it'd be really cool if other athletes, other sailors could get on board to kind of leave no trace or leave wherever you've been cleaner than how you found it. The 24th of April and this week we are going to Sailport Stevens. I think we pretty much cooked dinner for everybody. The Dennis Thompson is a PRO. Miss Stacey Jackson. Yeah, do you think you could smuggle a sausage sandwich across the border for me? <laughs> Mr. Kimo Worthington, the general manager for the US Sail GP team. To yeah. get this boat, this platform, and they put up this whole thing for you guys. If I hear any complaining, get out of here. Which of you was on board when this happened? I was on the weather side about going underwater, holding yeah. my breath, yeah. Oh my and gosh. And I was this... on the leeward side of the boat, getting blasted with water from behind. <laughs> so, uh, Wasn't that yeah. the 47 knots, you guys? Yeah. It was a really good cause to cover all of those boats that don't normally get covered. This is Nick Douglas for Adventures of a Sailor Girl, keeping you covered for your Rolex Sydney Hobart coverage. Uh, it was like literally probably one of my life highlights. Yes, um, an incomplete paraplegic, low, sort of low down. I had an accident that I don't really talk about anymore because sailing is way more fun. <laughs> I cannot believe the level of misogyny that we had to deal with. It's so amazing that you kept going, not really. It was it was fear of failure and what that would mean for other women. If we failed, she wouldn't just have this whole misogyny and sailing to, you know, sort of to deal with. She'd have our failure around her neck like an anchor. Anything that can get women onto boats and get them sailing is great in my book. Five years ago, literally almost the same week that I met Alex Holmes from New Black Films, who was going to make the documentary, mm -hmm. uh, I had an email from a, a marina in the Seychelles saying, did you know your boat maiden's been sitting here rotting for the past two years? And what do we do with her? You know, we know she's very special. The guy on the travel list and I said, do I know you? And he said, yeah. He said, I put maiden in the water um, 25 years ago, just before the start of the Whitbread. He said, and I, you know, he said, I've got, again, a little bit dusty here today, you know, wiping yeah. a tear from his eye. And I said, I'm so, I said, I'm so thrilled that maiden means so much to other people and not just me. He said, it's the maiden factor. And I went, I'm going to steal that. I had to write my first CV at the age of 43. That was a shock to the system. Yeah. And this is when I realized the value of education because you know yeah it's okay to be passionate and to throw yourself into it and it's all very you know I don't know cavalier um but education is the power that women must be given you know if we if we don't have an equal education system for girls and boys women will never be equal that's a much better way of putting it than falling into something you've had a lot of amazing unforeseen circumstances. <laughs>
just I'm going to read this quote from the movie as well when you won the leg into New Zealand. Girls have to look like this, be like that, be like this, do that. But when you're at sea, you don't have to wash, you don't have to dress properly, you don't have to do your hair. It sounds like being in lockdown. <laughs> I love it. I mean, seriously, I, I have washed my hair for you for the first time in a very long time. And, oh. um, and I smell fragrant at the moment, as well, but that will not last for long. Welcome, everybody. Excited to be back for another week. It is the 22nd of May. I think this is week nine of bringing back Adventures Weekly. And gosh, we've been so lucky if you've seen to have so many guests. Tonight's guest uh, is taking it to a whole nother level and I'm very excited. But we'll call in first. We've got to get her on the line. We, uh, we miss her if we don't. We've got Miss T. How you going? Hey, Nick. I'm good, thanks. Excellent. Are you ready to send me through everyone's questions today? Yeah, we've already got a lot rolling in. Don't forget to comment below, guys, your questions if you want them answered. Excellent. You're on top of it. So I think uh, without further ado, let's get into this show so we can start talking to our guests. It's time for... Sailing News in 60 Seconds-ish. It is sailing news in 60 seconds. So the most exciting news for Australians is that recreational boating is going to be exempt from the four metre squared rule and they need to maintain 1.5 social distance when they can, but up to 10 people can be sailing on a boat at a time. So it sounds like winter racing will start going from about the 1st of June. T, you excited? You can go match racing. I know, I'm so excited. Me and the girls, we're already setting dates to start training. <laughs> Fantastic. You know, that's good. I think the CYC, the Royal Sydney Yacht Squadron, a lot of the, the bigger clubs are starting to get their winter series uh, sort of happening. But that's more so in New South Wales. I think everyone's following their own state laws, so make sure you check your own legislation. World Sailing has cancelled the 2020 Offshore World Championship, which was meant to be held alongside the Rolex Middle, Middle Sea Race, so it's not all happiness everywhere by any means. And more AC news after last week. Grant Simmer, the Ineos Team UK CEO, has said that the New Zealand government have been quite silent on whether going whether they're going to facilitate entry for the boats and the sailors to get into New Zealand. So, T, we might have to put a hold on those travel plans. It's not quite confirmed as yet. The inaugural splashes, which was held not last week but the week before, was won by the UK. We didn't talk about it last week because this week's guest was actually involved with the splashes. He did a good luck message for our Australian team. I'm very excited to welcome him now. So we'll get him straight in, T. T, are you excited? You ready to rip? You ready to rock? T, you there? You're live? You're speechless? Hey, sorry, I, I just I lost, lost you for, you for a second. A second. I'm, okay. I'm so excited to talk to him, though. <laughs> Good. It's checking. I thought you were a bit stunned. But here he is. He's our guest of the week, John Bertrand. Hey, oh. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Great pleasure, Nick. And oh, T. Fantastic. Yes, T is doing great things and I have to say it's um it's quite nice to see the youth so inspired we were talking about it off air just before this online game and 
how everything's progressed during the lockdown, young people have really come into their own. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, you know, all you guys are very much into the whole uh, digital space, but older people aren't, but it's, ch it's changed dramatically with the lockdown globally. And it's legitimized all this online communication and of course, social media and whatever. So that's a game changer, I think, for the sport of sailing as well as other sports, which don't get the normal mainstream media attention, that uh, people are getting much, much more tuned into the just, you know, this whole this whole world of Zoom, for example, it's a it's it's a breakout. And uh, I think it's exciting in terms of the next generation of, uh, you know, promotion of sports like the sport of sailing. Absolutely. Now, I I hardly <laughs> gave you the introduction that you should should have. I was going through the list of things that you've done in your <laughs> career today. I'll just show everybody the list. It's quite large. It takes up an entire page. But I mean, arguably, the one that people probably remember you most for is winning with Australia too and, and taking the America's Cup off the Americans for the first time ever. Pretty memorable. Yeah, well, obviously a big deal, but big deal for this country, for Australia, you know, taking on the world and, uh, and getting the job done when no other nation for over 130 years had not been able to achieve that. So, um, you know, clearly we're very proud of that. <laughs> Absolutely. But for those who don't know, you also attended two Olympic Games, uh, one in Munich in 1972, and then you were a bronze medalist in the Finn in 76. Uh, I mean, to have a bronze medal, not even measure up, I guess, not that it should be uh, minimised in its glory by any means. I think that it it must have been really interesting once Australia 2 happened for that to be sort of pushed aside in a way. Well, the, the bronze I, I'm very proud of because in that yeah. era we had no no coaches, no money, no nothing. And, mm. and I, was, we, I was competing against these Germans and the Russians and pretty pretty well-organised uh, you know, countries in terms of the support and technology. So uh, to be able to do that, I won the uh, – I was fourth in the 72 Olympics in Kiel in Germany. And they call that the leather medal. I, I remember going arm in arm with the uh, the great man George Bruder from Brazil, wow. and he was the current Starboat World Champion and also Finn class gold medal uh, gold uh, cup winner. So he was world champion in both those classes. Wow. And he chose the star, and this was the fourth time, no, sorry, the third time that he won. It was fourth place, and as he said, John, you realise we've just won the the leather medal. And I remember that with George and um, anyway, it eventually was able, obviously went to uh, the Montreal Olympics at Kingston and uh, won the bronze. And with, again, lack of support and lack of financial, you know, it was, we're, you know, I was, Raz and my wife, Raz and I were living in a car uh, throughout Europe. We didn't have enough money for the hotel and campaigning the, uh, the Finn before leading into the German Olympics. So, and also that era, that was when Australia only won three, medals in total including swimming wow. so after that the australian institute of sport was set up so that bronze medal was now in the uh, the uh, australian sports museum in melbourne yeah <laughs> yeah and so as i said it it definitely sh shouldn't be downplayed but it's interesting mm -hmm. that you can be remembered for one sporting feat over another because you've done so well and i guess then you've been there since the start of the institute of sport as well yeah, that's right. Yep. No, it's uh, plenty of water under the bridge there. Yeah. But the America's Cup obviously was huge. And uh, mm. 
you know, how it captured the imagine, uh, imagination of the country. I'm, you know, we we're halfway around the world at the time, but, you know, I'm told that the celebrations were not unlike the end of World War II in this country. Wow. You know, the, the country stopped. The, the country, according to Jim Hardy, and he would know, ran out of champagne. You could not buy a bottle of champagne <laughs> in Australia. The whole country was had drunk itself dry. Like for a, for a sailing event, it's amazing, but for, just for any sporting event, you know, how it stopped the nation. Absolutely. And uh, Morgan Research did a survey quite a few years back, but they, the three most memorable events in modern Australian history was John F. Kennedy's assassination, uh, Neil Armstrong setting foot on the moon, and Australia 2 crossing the finishing line. So to be part of that history is just something that, you know, again, as I said before, we're, as a team, we're very proud of. Yeah. And, and you should be. I now have a, a clip from the ABC with the reporting from that final day. And I thought we might have a little bit of a look at it uh, and then come back and talk a little bit more. Does that <laughs> work for you? <laughs> no worries at all. Here we go. No one can accuse Australia too of doing it the easy way, but then the Americans did hold the America's Cup for 132 years, and it has taken Australia no fewer than seven challenges to wrest it from the firm grasp of the New York Yacht Club. To win the Cup, Australia too had to come from two races down and from nearly one minute behind more than halfway through the final race. On the Newport waterfront, it was chaos and ecstasy as Australia too was hauled out. And this is what won it for Australia too. The monster, as the Bond Syndicate called the bulbous winged keel that made the West Australian 12 metre so competitive upwind and uncatchable downwind. Australia 2 won the start of her final contest with Liberty, but the Australian skipper John Bertrand threw away a handy lead halfway up the first leg. He failed to cover the American defender, and Liberty's skipper Dennis Connor got better use of the breeze. The Americans were in front at the first mark by 29 seconds. By the end of the first of the two reaching legs, at the second mark, Australia 2 was 45 seconds behind. Heading down the second reaching leg, Liberty has extended her lead over Australia 2. It seems that Bertrand's errors early in the race may have cost Australia 2 the America's Cup. But it never pays to rule out a comeback by Australia 2. And on the fifth leg, the West Australian 12 metre got the opportunity to show what an extraordinary downwind marvel Mr Ben Lexon has designed. Australia 2 picked up an amazing 1 minute and 18 seconds and with that slid into the lead to be ahead by a slender 21 seconds with one leg to sail. Connor battled back but could not get close. The America's Cup was Australia 2's. The Australian syndicate boss, Mr Alan Bond, said the trophy would remain the America's Cup and the first Royal Perth Yacht Club defence would be in 1987 or 88. Quite seriously, John Bertram and his crew have done a fine job today, as you all saw. And I'm so pleased that we can say not goodbye to Newport and to many friends here, but an open invitation the people of Newport and the people of America to come to Perth in Western Australia and try and win it back. We'll welcome you. After 132 years in the United States, after the longest winning streak in sporting history, the America's Cup is off to Perth. Jim Middleton, ABC News, Newport. So there you go. I could see you smiling off there, JB. <laughs> Obviously, some beautiful memories. That's right. And being on the boat is very different to commentating as well, I can tell you that. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I know. He, he he wasn't your biggest fan, was he? No, it's interesting. Like the, the um, 
the uh, the we you know we we actually had a, a sister ship. It was called Challenge Twelve, and we mm -hmm. raced against that for about four months, both in Fremantle and then across into on Port Phillip Bay. And after four months of training and racing, we couldn't really decide which boat was better: the conventional Challenge Twelve or Australia Two. And it was uh, we then developed new spinnaker designs, which was very very important. We moved the keel aft. Uh, about half a meter, some big, big changes, and eventually we were able to start to optimize the boat. But up until then, it was line ball. And the difference in speed was not unlike, to be honest, not unlike two etchels, not wow. much. Uh, pretty close racing, yeah, but people don't realize that when the keels were so different. And the thing that amazed us is that when we sailed the boats initially, the very, very first day over in Fremantle, when we launched Australia 2 against Challenge 12, we went upwind probably about 10 kilometres and you could tie a string between them, which amazed us because one keel was so different to the other. We turned around and set the spinnakers and Challenge 12 just wobbled away from us. And uh, we thought, my God, you know, and what happened is, is that, well, the reality is the center of gravity of Australia 2's keel was lower because of the wings, they were solid uh, lead. Mm -hmm. And our boat was wobbling a lot more. So as it turns out, we had to sail, as it turns out, higher angles with smaller spinnakers. It was only until we developed that, which is really Huey Trahan and uh, and uh, Tom Schneckenberg, that we were able to get the boat more to the optimum that was required. So uh, our, the weakest part of our uh, of our sailing was actually not upwind, but it was it was downwind, and the Italians were generally faster than us, uh, and the Americans never really did full America's Cup courses. They did mini courses, so they never realised that they're off the pace with their spinnaker development. That was part of our conclusion mm. at the end of the regatta. So all the stories within the stories, it's fascinating. Absolutely. And, and you obviously had a, a very integral part and a behind-the-scenes view. I'm going to ask you a question now which sort of leads in to what you were saying, which is from one of our adventurers. So Andre said, uh, is it true that he says he got, uh, I think it's a, a language translation, is it true, I'll translate, that you were furious when you saw the new keel design for the first time. Well, uh, yeah, it's actually interesting. When I saw the field sky, I wasn't first time. I wasn't furious, but I was yeah. intrigued with what Benny had come up with. So what had happened is we were sailing over in the Admiral's Cup in England and Alan Bond and myself and Warren Jones, we took a private plane over to the Netherlands Ship Model Testing Facility in Holland where Benny had been working on keel development and getting nowhere and then eventually started to, communicate and work with the Fokker Friendship design engineers who are working on high-speed uh, uh, underwater uh, torpedoes for the U.S. Sorry there, John. Winglet. Keep, That's all right. keep Winglet. going. Sorry Wing about that. <laughs> Wingless was a secret name description at that stage, but that was the wing keel that we eventually saw. Yeah, sure. And uh, the computer systems in that era were really, you know, very rough. We are talking about a long time ago, the simulations. It all suggested that this boat was going to be a rocket ship, but I'd already worked with Benny. I'd graduated from MIT in Boston in ocean engineering and uh, naval architecture in a Master of Science degree, and I'd joined Benny in, for the 1974 America's Cup, and I'd just seen how it operated, and we actually had a slow boat. It was called Southern Cross. Yeah. And uh, so when I saw this left-field development, I thought, oh, Benny, you know, just give us a conventional boat and we'll try and get the job done. So, but the fact is it was too interesting not to build and that was the yeah. right decision to make because the boat was very, very good.
And then it must have been really difficult seeing that kill for the first time and going, oh, can't we just be conventional? And then doing all that testing with Challenge 12 and they were so similar, it must have been incredibly nerve-wracking working out well, which way to go. Well we, had, well, we had the option to take mm. Challenge 12. That was part of the deal. Mm. Uh, but um, anyway, we made the right decision because we were able to optimise Australia 2 even further, which we had to do because the Americans, you know, they built three new boats. That was the Dennis Connor project. So it was, it was a huge program. You know, the budget would have been two to three times our budget. And uh, it was extremely well organised. And the US program was a highly, highly competitive. So we had, as it turns out, we were, ourselves were highly competitive, but that was the nature of the America's Cup, which is always the case. To win, you really need the right equipment as well as the right team around you. Absolutely. And then now I saw you in Bermuda when we were there for the last America's Cup I mean, the development and what the America's Cup does to push sailing forward is incredible. Yeah, and it continues. You know, the, the, the often the, one of the visions of the Australia 2 effort was let's, on the basis that the Olympics improves every four years, let's say, and the Olympics is really the cutting edge of human endeavour. You know, you, it's really it's pure competition, the Olympic Games. America's Cup is very political. It's a, it, you know, it's much more multifaceted. But if you look at every four years, you get an improvement in the Olympics. Every 20 years, you have a quantum leap in performance, whether it's throwing a javelin or a 100-metre sprint, it doesn't matter. There's a quantum leap in performance. So you look at the world, uh, world records. So we said to ourselves very simply, if we can emulate what we're, our kids will achieve in 20 years' time and apply that thinking to now, then we potentially can become so good that even with the worst luck, we'll still be successful. And that was the mantra of the project. So it wow. gave our young people, in particular, the the uh, you know the authority to think outside the box. And the wing keel would never have happened without that. But also the sports psychology and the sail development that we did, it was really very very advanced. Now you look at the way back in 1983, it was highly advanced relative to anything that had been done before. But you transfer 20 years forward, and we're racing team model forwards compared to the latest Ferraris. And the beautiful thing is in 20 years' time, it'll make today's projectiles look archaic. That's the exciting thing, I think. You know, that's human endeavour. And uh, so all we do know is, is that, uh, you know, the game is just improving all the time. Absolutely. And you mentioned Hugh Trahan uh, in in the last answer of your question and going overseas, and he became an incredibly big part and filled a big hole when you weren't able to sail with Peter Gilmore. Who was a little bit That's younger. right. Mm. Yeah. Well, Peter was tactician on the boat and then he decided he wanted to do a souling program for the 84 Olympics. Mm -hmm. And he didn't make the team, as it turns out. Um, and uh, Huey then came in and Huey was fantastic, you know, older, uh, very mature and totally, totally dedicated. Sailmaker as well, uh, Blue Peter Sales. And he was an integral part of the Spinnaker Development Program, which we did over in in Newport in Rhode Island with this guy, Tom Schnackenberg. And uh, as it turns out, that spinnaker development is extremely important for the overall project. But Huey was fantastic and totally, totally dedicated. It, you'll love this. So he, he bought a boat, uh, bought a car, I think for about $500, an old Chrysler <laughs> rust bucket to travel around Newport. And the day we won, the next morning I woke up and in the driveway, we, and Huey and Dixie were renting the same apartment complex that we had. He had a big white paintbrush, big fat white 
and he'd, uh, he'd painted on the bonnet of this old Chrysler, W-E numeral one. <laughs> we won. We it's won. Just beautiful stuff. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. In, in big letters. It was just beautiful. That was Huey. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Well, what we might do now, because I think more stories will come out as we go through this week's trivia, which is one of Tiana's amazing feats that she's brought into the program, which is, which is great. And it's been themed all about you, JB. So as you're our guest, each week we have it themed. And Tiana's learned a lot about the America's Cup this week, haven't you? So much. So much. <laughs> really interesting stuff. Yeah, it's been, it's been really great actually watching her learn and, and get the bug for the America's Cup as a young match racer too. So uh, very, very cool. So uh, the, the first question that we have, it was, um, oh, how many people played this week, T? Um, we had 3,000 participants. There you go. 3,000 people. And a lot of them got questions wrong too. <laughs> so <laughs> for how many years was the America's Cup title held by the USA before Australia 2 won in 1983? We all know what the answer is to that after that lovely piece from the ABC. We thank them for that too. It was 132 years the longest time that a trophy has been held by one nation in history, the longest win winning streak ever. <laughs> and Nick, just to put in perspective, that's before the US Civil War. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, I was negative two when you won the cup. And Tiana, how old were you? <laughs> I wasn't even thought of. Yeah, I was, no yeah. way. No, is your birth date 91, T? 1999. 1999. There we go. See, she's even younger than I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, explaining to her, I you know, I grew up as, uh, you know, I was little, but it was still spoken about and it's just something that you learned. But Tiana knows you as the Etchell man, JB. Yep. Which you yep. also I've are. Seen, I've seen Tiana around with her, with her dad in particular. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Yes, it all overlaps in sailing. So number question number two, and T, I want you to tell me how many people got this incorrect. Who skippered Australia 2 in 1983? How many people got it right? I'll tell you exactly. Um, oh, 264 people got that one right. Oh, wow. There you go, JB. But yeah, everyone knew that one. <laughs> so we had Big Fella, who was your training partner on Challenge 12. Yep. Uh, Peter Gilmore, who we've already spoken about, uh, went off to do the Olympics or to attempt. And Sir James Hardy, who was a big part of the team, but not the skipper. And Jim was a very important mentor for myself, you know, mm -hmm. ha having already competed in uh, probably four America's Cups, I guess. Mm. And, uh, you know, when the push came to shove and the pressure was really on, uh, you know, when we were 3-1 down, we had to, you know, we came back from the dead. Uh, Jim was a terrifically important stabilising force within the team and certainly my ability to bounce ideas and thoughts and uh, just generally hang out with Jim was a very, very important part of the chemistry of the program. You know, these things have all got to come together. They, that was my fourth America's Cup myself. I'd, so I'd been through a lot of losing, a lot of scar tissue, you might say, mm. 
and also having lived in the US for about four years with my wife Raza when I was studying and and uh, also uh, working with North Sales and working developing the Fin program, Olympic program. Uh, so to have that stability in the organisation was vital, and that sense of trust when your back's to the wall—that's the big thing. The, yeah, and the, I guess cultural value. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned the sports psychology too, because having a, a nation resting on you is not easy. Well, that's right. Um, so you start to contemplate. Anyone starts to contemplate the consequences of winning or losing, and it can, it can uh, just do your head in, mm. and. Uh, that was one of the biggest issues. So we got rid of all television sets and stopped reading newspapers, no social media in that era, mm. and uh, got on with the business of the day and got into our bubble to the exclusion of anyone else. The only person that could that get through to me from Australia was mum. You never mm -hmm. stop mum from – very, very important. Mums are hard to come by. <laughs> they are. Mums are rocks. My mum is definitely oh, yeah. a rock. Uh, yeah. I think – that leads me on to one of my personal questions, which is how do you think you could possibly have coped with that much pressure if it was in today's age where the immediacy for news and wanting the behind-the-scenes view and social media, hard. Yeah, it, you're right, yeah. We have the same scenario with the Olympic Games. I'm, mm. For my sins, I'm president of Swimming Australia and I have no swimming background, but they asked me to be involved after the London Olympics, which our team, you know, didn't do too well. So my background is building high-performance teams with the America's Cup in particular. And uh, so we've got the whole social media thing. And these are athletes, you know, they train for four years. The sport of swimming is a brutal sport physically and mentally. And they have to overcome this whole issue of, you know, being on social media and then pulling back from it. So it's a big one. We didn't have that complexity way back uh, when we, I was doing the America's Cup. However, I must say that the fact that the America's Cup had never been won before yeah. and we're there and we had a red-hot shot at this thing and we're obviously competitive, then it became clear that um, it was a big deal back in home. Although, let me also say that I'm still blown away by how big a deal it really was. You know, the number of people still come up to me literally every day in the street to tell me what, not what I was doing, but what they were doing when we crossed the line all those years ago, if you're old enough, of course. Indeed. So, well, there's, I, yeah. I've had all the stories my entire life and I wish I was alive. I really do. Because it, it is one of those moments that everyone remembers. When someone finds out I'm a sailor, they ask me two questions. You know, were you alive when we won the cup? I was hmm. here, and have you done a Rolex Sydney Hobart? They're the two yeah, questions I get asked. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it's a big piece of Australian fabric, not just in terms of sailing, which is no, phenomenal. No, it's, it supersedes. That's right. It's part of our – what happened in 1983, we're going through a tough recession at the time. We're going through – we had bushfires and we had droughts. Mm. I mean, it was a global recession. Crocodile Dundee had come out the year before. Yep. So that gave Australia a sense of identity globally. And, you know, and then the, Australia, the America's Cup program, 83, that was a really, you know, we needed heroes and we came from 3-1 down. Looking back on it, it was like the Anzac spirit. You know, we, we, if there's one thing that our country is proud of, it's our ability to, to fight when our backs are to the wall. We cut, we're proud of that. We, we celebrate Gallipoli. Now, we were defeated in Gallipoli, for goodness sake. Mm. But it was the way that our men 
and our armies looked after each other and were able to get out of that incredible um, you know situation so it's you know when you look at it part of the part of the uh, dna of this country is this feeling that we are uh, we're good when our backs are to the wall so the america's cup epitomized that so i think there's no question with all these other elements too that uh, that was one of the reasons why it was such a significant part of a uh, the culture of this country now absolutely and i have a question from a an adventurer now ian olson he says race 7 1983 top mark last time you're behind the red boat only has to stay between you and the bottom mark can you remember what was in your mind at that time and how was the team able to pull together to find that famous passing lane i think that is big a question. fishing big, question big question yeah yeah, yeah. wow um well we, there was a huge amount of chop you know, there's no boats that were any shorter than a hundred feet in the old, old world. You know, there's this, the horizon was just full of boats, including us coast guard vessels. It was huge. So as we were sailing in a washing machine and fixed wing aircraft and helicopters above, you couldn't even communicate more than maybe a meter in front. There's so much noise mm. during the race. Um, when we went around the top mark, we actually had more wind than Liberty, which was I think 40 odd seconds in front of us. So, mm-hmm. 40 odd seconds, you know, you could hardly read their sail number. It wasn't, it was, you know, we're in trouble. Uh, but the fact is we had more breeze, but with so much chop, they, you know, the uh, Dennis and the team really couldn't see that. They were spooked by what was underneath the waterline. Okay. They kind of knew that there was this stuff going on. Our wind-loss ratio against the US, the other challenges, the Canadians and Brits and so on, French, was very good. And they jibed away taking a risk. This is our analysis of it. Mm. We continued on one starboard leg for quite a while. Then we picked up a 10 to 15 degree shift in our favor when we jibed. So that was the reason we got back in the game so fast. And we only, only when we had our 30 year anniversary quite a few years back, uh, John Longley, Chink Longley was able to get the computer printouts off the boat at the Royal at the uh, West Australian Maritime Museum. He stole them, okay, off Australia too. Yeah, beautiful stuff. Yeah, there was was a whole bunch of stuff going on, you know, it was beautiful. And we analysed it and you could see the wind shift that we're in. Wow. Yeah, so that's called, is that called luck or whatever? Well, we just kept going. And, uh, but while we're out there by ourselves is because Liberty, they jibe five or six or seven times to our one. Every time you jibe, you lose half a boat length in those conditions, maybe more too, there's the length. So we got back in the race with a whole bunch, a combination of them going off by themselves and us picking up a really nice wind shift and, you know, got back to square one at the bottom mark. Fantastic. Part of the history of this thing. (laughs) Absolutely. And we've got these beautiful images that I'm putting up underneath you. There's a shot going downwind when when you were reaching and I have to thank the yeah. Uh, yeah the Australian National Maritime Museum and Sally who was the photographer so she's uh, she sends her best mm-hmm. and, and and we're really thankful for them to, to for jumping on board so a lot of their images are in the back of our trivia as well so John Bertrand was the skipper of Australia too which we've just heard the next question was in 1983 what was the name of the defending team and I think we all know the answer to that one. It was Liberty. 
Did lots of people say stars and stripes? Yeah, most people said stars and stripes for that one. I thought that might happen. Stars of Stripes, of course, was Dennis Connor's next boat, I believe. Next syndicate, that's right, 87. Indeed. I think he still now owns the name as well, uh, which he was going to give to an alternate American entry for this next cup, which didn't get off the ground, unfortunately. So what club did Australia 2 represent from Australia when competing for the 1983 Cup is the next question. And the answer, of course, is Royal Perth Yacht Club, thanks to Alan Bond. Was it interesting competing for Perth rather than Royal Brighton, John, which many (laughs) would associate you with? (laughs) Well, it had no bearing on us. We never saw Royal Perth Yacht Club people. We're just doing our thing. You know, we're totally independent. But we had to have a challenging yacht club and Royal Perth was it. Yeah, indeed. And Alan Bond obviously was a big part of the campaign. Oh, he was critical. You know, he mm. he first challenged in 1974 when he was 34 years old, 34 years old, and he had the audacity to challenge for the America's Cup. It's just amazing. And <laughs> uh, we and I was part of that, and we got blown out in 74, blown out of the water. And then he came back in 77, 80, and then 83. So you talk about resilience. It's just amazing. Without Alan... You know, there would this this would have just you know would have been just a, a dream, but nothing else. It's incredible that he had the belief that he would one day get there. Yeah, and a bulldog attitude, never give up. You know, the Churchill thing. There's no question about it, and that was typical of of Bond. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic! But it got you there in the end. So the next question was, and we know the answer. Who was the designer of the mythical keel that was rumoured to be Australia 2's secret weapon? It was Ben Lexon, an interesting character by all reports. Oh, Benny, yeah. Brilliant. I've, my summation of Ben was is he was the Leonardo da, Vin, Leonardo da Vinci of Australia mm. and he was totally self-taught. He basically had three years of formal education from the from the year nine to twelve, and then he left. Taught to think inside a box. It was also all out there, and the way he studied Mother Nature and the flights of birds and just everything. Uh, he, he was a he was a student of life, Benny, and a brilliant, brilliant person, and also the godfather of our first child, Lucas. Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people miss him. I found a photo when I was looking through everything this week and I, I couldn't get permission to use it, but there's a picture of him drinking a beer sitting on the winged keel. Absolutely yep. awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, been an amazing individual. And, you know, what he did with the 18-foot skiffs, Taipan, and mm. um, uh, Carl Rives and myself, we sailed Taipan for the last time on Sydney Harbour before it went into the... Uh, National Maritime Museum in the uh, in Sydney, and uh, you know the work that which again, a uh, amazing individual. Yep. Yeah. Oh, Carl the, Rives the is Leonardo. another legend too. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So to give you an idea, Benny, he was different. So just a very little story here to to wash his clothes. Nick, he would go into the shower and scrub with his clothes on. And then come out, and eventually they would dry on him. 
So Benny was different. He was different. You have to have different. You have to have different people to make stuff happen. Oh, and to think of things yeah, that just people real haven't world. thought of before. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh absolutely. my gosh. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> oh, I feel like we're going to talk all night. I'll try not to keep you all night. So we'll keep going with the quiz. Excellent. So the next question is, uh, who was the coach of the Australia 2 winning team? <laughs> and I want to know what everybody said here, T. It was Fletch. I think I've got yeah, a picture. Yeah, most, most people thought it was Sir James Hardy. There you go. But he actually was sailing on the team. And we've got Warren Jones in there as a, as a answer as well. And I believe he was very important and has been called meticulous by yourself, John, and also potentially Bondi's keeper. You did say he was a bit of a bulldog. True? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Warren, Warren was bored with most of the project unless he was fighting the New York Yacht Club. Oh, wow. So Warren, Warren loved the smell of gunpowder. So whenever there was a stoush on, Warren was fully alive and fully motivated. So he's just fantastic to have on our side. And, you know, and he actually a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom as well. Yeah, Again, that... the depth of the team was very interesting and in how, you know, that we held, held the whole thing together. Indeed. And I love this picture here by Sally with Warren and Bondi and you up the back. You're having a little private giggle to yourself there. I'm not sure what had just been said, but <laughs> it looks like fun. Yeah, well, you know, the, again, the, the synergy amongst those individuals, yeah. Absolutely. All fantastic. with big egos, all part of the deal, yeah. Indeed. And Fletch, uh, if my dad didn't believe that, because Fletch has coached <laughs> us quite a bit, he didn't believe that Fletch was the coach back then, but I love this shot of him there. And he's still coaching now. He's a, amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Michael is, you know, he sailed, sailed in Gwyn 12s on Port Phillip Bay initially. And I remember his father unpacking the boat down at the Frankston Yacht Club. So we go back a long way and Fletch was involved in many, many Olympic teams as, as head coach. And again, you know, having his input and knowledge and just general gut feel among many aspects was an important part of the input to the program. And he'll never let yeah. that coach boat go. Still driving the no. same coach boat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. Oh, he's beautiful. All righty. So the next question. Oh, I'm over the page. Exciting. We'll try and pause this one. It's quite got 50 million things going on. So what year was John Bertrand awarded the Order of Australia, which we then know was also upgraded, but it was 1984 in the Australia Day Honours. And then in 2016, John, Officer of the Order of Australia, Queen's Birthday Honours List in recognition for sporting administration, in particular swimming and sailing. And I love the next bit as well children's welfare, higher education, and mentoring young people. Very, very important. T herself was on a call with you this week talking about Etchell's youth programs. Very exciting. Correct. And it's something, you know, the youth of the country is the future. And it's very, very important that if we have a situation, opportunity of giving back and helping, you know, our young people, then we all should do it. It's all part of the deal. It is part of the deal. Poor T didn't know what she was in for when she became my assistant. <laughs> but <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we can have so many more people who are as passionate about sailing as she is. Uh, she'll go far. Uh, now the next question, I love this one. And this is actually me with my copy of the book. 
I'm covering up the name there because we said, what is the name of John Bertrand's best-selling book? I've read it a hundred times. What did everybody say, T? Thankfully, people got this one right. Excellent. Born to win. Born to win. A lot of people also chose against the odds, which arguably you could say could have been a title as well, against the odds. So the story behind the title is kind of interesting. When originally the title was going to be To Take You Home, it comes out of Jonathan Livingston's Seagull book, yeah, which wow. was a very important part of our my my world at that stage. And, and he, the wrote, publishers, he wrote your prologue as well, didn't he? He did. Yes, he yes. did. Yes, the intro. And uh, the publishers in New York, Bantam Books, said that it's not a pick-me-up title. And in the US, you know, something like a 1,000 new books launched every day in America. And unless the title jumps out at you so they said well what's different about this guy out you know in, in australia as it turns out my great grandfather thomas perks was a an engineer involved in building uh, three of sir thomas lipton's j-class boats in southampton and the engineers the best engineers in the world at that stage came down from uh, scotland and they stayed with uh, thomas and and uh, my great grandmother for nine months while they built these boats so they said Born to win. This kid's got got the salt in his America's Cup salt in his veins. And when when it first came back, you know, I thought, well, there's just no way that we can call a book that in this country. And then I thought, well, part of the problem or part of our challenge is the tall poppy syndrome in Australia, having lived Absolutely. in the US a lot and other parts of the world. And I felt that one of the biggest hurdles that we have as a nation is we when people are successful, they try and kind of, you know, they, they're uncomfortable with success. Hopefully we're growing out of that. So I felt if there's opportunity to legitimize success, let's give this a crack. So I said, yeah, let's go with this, effectively the American title or American creator title. And uh, that's the background to it, based on my uh, great-grandfather's involvement. That's, that's <laughs> really interesting too. So your great-grandfather, Sir Thomas Lipton, uh, your grandmother, I believe, who was a big part of Chelsea Yacht Club, which was your original yep. yacht club, uh, went as far as to say that basically no one will win the cup until my Johnny gets a turn to hold the helm. Uh, bless, bless her soul. Yeah, amazing. And she died about words. she died two months before we started in Newport, as it mm. turns out. But she, but we all knew that she knew. <laughs> She knew before anybody did. <laughs> she yeah. would have liked the title of your book too. <laughs> no question. Not a problem. Mm. Oh, beautiful. All right. Well, let's go back to the questions. Oh, there's you and I. There we and go. LGP. Excellent. Yeah. So <laughs> what Speed year... to burn. Yeah. That was really fun. <laughs> but what year was uh, John Bertrand? inducted into the Australian Sailing Hall of Fame. T, how many got it right? Only 79. 79, yes. It was 2017 because that's the year that the Australian Sailing Hall of Fame was actually introduced. So a big shout-out to everyone at the Australian National Maritime Museum again. I, um, I actually have the website up next to me and I'll share it later on um, where, where the Sailing Hall of Fame page is. And I think they're going to put this interview up there as well 
uh, JB. So, so that's really nice just to capture that as well. But you're inducted into the America's Cup Hall of Fame in 1993. And I think that's when, I think it started in 1990. But you were in the Sport Australia Hall of Fame, fame by 1985. And you're now the chair of that organisation. Yeah, and something that, again, you know, the, the Sport Australia Hall of Fame is unique globally. It's the only Hall of Fame in any country in the world which represents all the sports of one country. So all the Olympic disciplines and AFL and netball and everything, unlike the US where you have NL, NBL Hall of Fame and NFL mm -hmm. and so on. And so, you know, it started off with Bradman and Dawn Fraser and, We've got all, all the legends of sport in this country, our members, and that's something that I'm, uh, you know, obviously a wonderful organisation to be associated with. Oh, absolutely. So I've been there. I've, I've been chair for the last uh, 15 years, as it turns out, quite on innings. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, um, I, I did say this list is phenomenal. I would read it all out, but I've read it out about three times today to anybody who would listen. <laughs> like, just coming <laughs> on my show. Uh, so it's just... It's fantastic, though, the, uh, the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. Are there any other sailors in? Oh, sport? yeah. Yes? Yeah. Jock Sarek. Jock mm -hmm. Sarek. America's Cup. Yes. Um, we, have, uh, uh, we have Victor Kovalenko. Excellent. The medal maker. Mm -hmm. he, gave, he gave a speech, Nick, in front of 1,200 people about three years ago when we inducted him, and he blew the roof off. You know, he took the microphone and he just took control of the audience as if you've ever been privy to Victor in a formalised speech, he just raise, raise, raises to the occasion and he talked about this country, you know, they're naturalised citizens, he and Tatiana, his wife yes. and son. And you, you think, how good is this? You know, Victor is the soul of high-performance sailing in this country you know, the most successful Olympic sailing coach that the world has ever seen in terms of Olympic medals and indeed Olympic gold medals. And he lives here in Australia and he is part of us. How lucky are we? We are, we are <laughs> so lucky. I have his book as well. I was at the launch for it. Um, and I, I think you could call him the speech maker as well because that night yeah. I think everybody was crying. Uh, he's... He's got a brilliant story, and I guess it shows you why he's such a great coach as well, able to motivate people even in the toughest of pressured situations. He's the, probably the most, the best sports psychologist that I've ever come across, and mm. I've dealt with a lot of people, you know, in all Olympic sports, including swimming. And Victor is really at the cutting edge of empathy for people under high, high pressure. It's quite amazing. He comes from the Russian school of thinking mm. where thoughts are through the heart more than the mind. That's the, I guess that's the best way I can explain, Victor. Yeah, he's, So um, that's his upbringing. Amazing coached, individual. Yeah, he's coached me as well. And I remember him saying, like looking at you and going, you know, winning is not here. Winning is here. You know, there do you, you the have the soul mm. to win? Yeah, mm. so... So it's very different. I think in the early days when he came to Australia, well, first of all, let me just say, 19, the 2000 Olympics, I was a mentor with Dawn Fraser and Herb Elliott for the entire team. So I was wow. obviously I was assigned sailing, but also um, athletics. I spent some time with Kathy Freeman and, and rowing and 
equestrian and so on. It was a fascinating time. And we lived in the village. Anyway, I, when I first met Victor, was, which was during the Olympic Games down at Rushcutters Bay, I said, Victor, I introduced myself and I said, Victor, tell me about your philosophy of coaching. And he said, John, in his broken English then, yeah. he said, John, very simple. Normally I have four years to work with new athletes, but because of red tape and so on, I only had three years uh, leading into this Olympic Games. This is the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Mm -hmm. He said, year one is to, ex now, this is the key. This is Victor. And this is the essence of life in many ways. Year one, John, is to excite their imaginations. So it's not to tell these kids how to sail faster, but it's to excite young people's imaginations to ask why. Why is it so? To be inquisitive. And this is what I was trying to talk about the other night. Mm -hmm. and, and to delve into why this is so. To, to excite their imagination. Year two, John, is simple. To get up to world level in match racing and fleet racing. To sail against the best of the best. So we have to compete in the world championships, the US nationals, the European championships. And he said year three, the year of the Olympics is very simple, John. It is to dominate the world. How cool is that? So simple. So when when young people can hear that, in my opinion, and hear from the great man, part of the dream is to dominate the world. You think, how do I get a piece of that? How do I get on that train? How do I get on that bus? So that's what we're talking about, you know. So we're not talking about the finesse of tactics and windships and so on. With Victor talks about a higher level of exciting young people's imaginations and therefore tapping into their passions. Without passion, people do not achieve great things. We know that. It is so <laughs> true. How do you capture passion and, and share it on? Poor Tiana. <laughs> She's in for the long <laughs> haul. <laughs> uh, but I have I have a question for you that might lead on after we've just been talking about the medal maker. Uh, my dad actually asked this question online. Thanks for watching, Dad. Uh, so he said, you sail with so many high-quality sailors and you obviously get to talk to so many different athletes. Who do you consider to be the most impressive and, and why? As in sailors or athletes generally? I think that's open board. to you. That's a big subject. I think Isn't yeah, it? I know Dawn Dawn Fraser mm -hmm. very well, the most successful swimmer in the history. Uh, three Olympics and three three gold medals and three successive Olympic Games. Um, people like Grant Hackett and Ian Thorpe uh, within the world of sailing. I spent Raz and I spent two days with the great Dane Paul Elstrom in Paul Copenhagen. Elstrom. I would have loved yep, to have met quite him. a few years back. It was amazing. Mm. And we walked in the front gate and the front gate opened and closed beautifully. And behind that was the most beautiful block and tackle system. It was all, it, the engineering was wonderful. And Paul told us about the stories of getting into the fin in the very early days and training out on, on the, uh, the ocean there. But really what he wanted to know was all about the psychology behind the winning of the America's cup, you know? So it was, we had two days of, question and answer and this man again he was so curious about life and curious about again in this, this case the world of, of america's cup so that was a great honor to hang out with paul the, 
Another great, great person that we spent a lot of time with in America was my mentor. It was a man called Buddy Melges. Yeah. And Buddy from the Great Lakes. And he, again, a little bit like Ben Lexon, just way out there in left field. And uh, I consider Buddy probably the greatest US sailor ever in terms of what he was able to achieve in isolation, without competition, without coaches and so on. Uh, so, yes, there have been some wonderful individuals that, uh, you know, I've been privy to come across. You seem to be really fascinated with that psychological element, though. So do you think that's what draws you to those personalities? Yeah, well, it's the difference between winning and losing at the highest level. You know, Grant Hackett had a collapsed, semi-collapsed lung at the Athens Olympics and still went on to win the 1,500-metre gold medal. You talk about bravery. He should have been in hospital. Mm. So, you know, the question is why is people, you know, what drives people like that? How, and and Grant is just a terrific bloke. You know, he lives here in Melbourne. And and um, so, I, I the, again, you know, when people put all the effort into it, ultimately the difference between winning and losing is the thickness of a hair. It can be. At the Olympic Games, it could be 10 countries that could win the gold medal at any one time. And the, the difference there is really the stuff between the, the ears, all the stuff that goes on there. And, and the I find that really interesting. <laughs> and, well, yeah. it's all connected. From Victor's point of view, it is all one. <laughs> oh, so beautiful. So we'll come on to the last question, I think, which, of course, talks about what you're doing now. And you are the president of swimming, uh, I think. That, that one is there. So, T, how many people said sailing? <laughs> <laughs> like all of them. Like yeah. 200 people said sailing. <laughs> I yeah, thought, why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would, it would make more sense to people that you were the president of Australian Sailing, but you are the president of Swimming Australia. Uh, so I think what most people may not know, though, is your mum was actually a very good swimmer. Yes, that's right. And she highly competitive and she became so competitive that she'd be physically ill before major competition wow. so that kind of blew her away in the in the 11th hour but yeah she was a naturally very good swimmer but i was involved i had no interest in obviously in that space but they the board asked me to consider joining and becoming chair of swimming australia after the 2012 olympic games mm -hmm. when the australian swim program had a lot of internal issues cultural issues so 2013, I, yes, I joined and I'll go through to October this year as uh, president. I'll retire. I'll have done my seven years for the country. And um, it's been a fantastic and a fascinating and a very honoured role to be involved, but not without its issues. You know, we've, there's so much going on. The Australian swim team, if we get it right, will generate 30 to 40% of all the Olympic gold medals at the next Olympics. Wow. Uh, which has been historically the, the case. So, we, you know, it's, it's the Olympic sport for, um, for the country and there's a lot of pressure on the team as well as building up from grassroots. So getting the culture right and getting the vision right and getting the right people involved is all part and parcel, which is, let's face it, it's the world of the America's Cup or any team sport. You've got to get the right people um, singing from the same hymn book. That's the... That's the uh, the art of leadership in many ways. I was going to say, you're, you're not one to shy away from a challenge or a position where you've got the nation on your shoulders. 
Well, it's something where, you know, you're here for, as they say in the old world, two, three score and 10. You know, it's not a dress rehearsal life. So if, if we're in a position, if you're in a position to be able to do something that where you, that's significant, then why not? I think that's really, that was my conclusion. I, I, initially, when they asked me, I said, no, it's just, I don't know anything about swimming. The, I don't know about the politics and so on. But ultimately, my conclusion was this is of national importance and uh, if people want me to be involved and they think I can add value, then let's give this a shot. And that's, that was a reason for the decision. Absolutely. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't agree more. And when you say that you've done seven years for your country, I think you could say you've given a lifetime to your country from the amount that you've put into winning the America's Cup, winning <laughs> a medal, working for Swimming Australia. I mean, it's, it's not just seven years, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a journey, you know, it's, and very privileged to be involved in the world of sport and all the incredible people that, uh, you know, Raz and my wife and I, you know, we've been married 50 years, for God's sake. We got married literally when we were teenagers. Should never have happened. You know, and here we are. And we're, we're in more love now than we've ever been. It's just amazing. Which is beautiful. Um, yeah, she just graduated from Monash University in International Studies and she's now doing, she's now studying Middle East politics online through Tel Aviv University. Wow. Unbelievable. Here that we are in Australia, you know, and we just, you know, she, she was born in Lithu or a Lithuanian parents. Mum and dad came out as migrants and, the, you know, the story of this country. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we are very lucky to be here. Very I lucky. think. Even in recent weeks, I've never felt as lucky to be an Australian, I think. Uh, it's been interesting. We're very fortunate. That's we right. are very, yeah. very fortunate. And that's part, of, that's part of the luck of the draw. Yep, no question. Absolutely. So what I thought I'd do, uh, we had the inaugural splashes, and we'll, we'll wrap it up after that, but I thought I'd, I'd just show you the, uh, the recap of the splashes that I made, John. Would you like to see? I would love to see. <laughs> Talking <you>. about how <laughs> Australians deal with uh, being in lockdown, though the Australians didn't do uh, so well. Spo spoiler alert. But let's have a little bit of a look at the inaugural splashes. Now it's going to be best of three. <laughs> Welcome to the splashes. Great Britain versus Australia in the ultimate virtual sailing showdown. Heads or tails, Tom? Uh, we'll go with tails. Okay. Hi there, everyone. Andrew Strauss speaking here. Uh, and welcome to the splashes where Australia's best sailors are taking on Great Britain's finest. I am assuming in true Ashes tradition that the Great British sailors are going to romp home and win this. But now is time for the all important coin toss. The winner of the toss will be able to choose their own Can virtual venue, either Sydney or Portsmouth. I've dropped it. The coin has come down as a heads. The first race, we're racing in Portsmouth. And Nick, what's it like to see Portsmouth in such beautiful conditions? It's not often we have the sunshine like we've got today. I was going to say, usually I'd be wearing my full offshore kit in Portsmouth. So what a glamour day to be out on the virtual water. Great start for the Brits here, Luke. You must be really happy with the situation so far. Yeah, yeah, it's good, eh? I'm just kind of trying to still get my bearings on who's who around this course but um we're all navy blue also pipe down with that english stuff there nick oh i'm sorry about that you know we've got to get yeah. a bit of banter going 
Be, uh, before oh. the race, everybody, you didn't you didn't see it, but in the uh, in the chat that we had before the race started, there's already been a few comments about ball tampering. So I'm just sticking up for my Aussies here. Oh no, another penalty to Whaley. Whaley just picking up a penalty there. Can't be this is really giving it to the Australians. What a comeback this is in this race. G'day, John Bertrand here. Splashes. I love the idea. And um, Australia taking on the world, particularly uh, Great Britain. Uh, Tommy and the boys, good luck. As the Americans would say, go kick some ass. Hi, Ian Murray here. I'd just like to wish our test team going into the, the slashes tonight, splashes tonight, uh, all the best. I know that Slingers has been hitting sixes in the nets. Kyle's been hammering the bounces down. TB's been niggling behind the wicket. And watch out, bombs. They're coming. Hi, quick message to all those taking part in the virtual ashes. Hope you all have a great time. Have a fantastic match. Keep that Brit-Aussie rivalry and camaraderie going. And of course, I hope the Brits come out on top. So, do us proud, boys. Go into the sequence for race two of the splashes. Fantastic. And uh, just on social media, everybody that's watching, thanks so much. Uh, big shout outs from Lucy Hodges, MBE. She's cheering on Johnny, who's one of her <coughs> past coaches and has done a lot to help blind sailing in the UK. Lots of messages cheering the UK guys on. I'm not sure what the Aussies are doing, uh, but lots of people loving the commentary too, um, getting on board with these fantastic sailors. Mark, awesome work putting this together. Other penalty before the start. That's not looking good at all for Slingsby or Kyle Langford. It is the virtual equivalent of gear failure happening on it the Sydney Harbour racetrack. Well played, Mark Jardine. But meanwhile, Tom Burton is out in front with Hackney in second, Ben Saxton in third at the moment. So the computer says it could all change depending on who's got the right away at the top, Mark. Let's uh, go and have a little bit of a look. Massive lead to Tom Burton. Hackney in second, doing it for the Aussies. We've lost Slingsby by the look of it. He's actually dropped out of the race, Kyle Langford and... Shoe at the bottom end of the scorecard with Tom Burton, Hackney in the lead, Whaley, Saxton. Then we've got Luke Patience, Bithell and Johnny McGovern slash Johnny McBoatface. I love that name. I think that is hilarious. It's, it's quite apt actually for Sydney Harbour and Bodie McBoatface, the ferry. Huge number of changes. So huge amount going on in that race. Incredibly difficult to follow with so many place changes, but good to see. But Nick... Epic. Crazy and chaotic racing, but how do you think it's going to have ended up when Sarah's compiled the scores, Nick? Well, I think it'll be pretty tough for the UK to lose at this point, unless there's some results being tampered with. Uh <laughs> <laughs> no, never. Uh, five was patience, and four was chew. Uh, in third place overall was Bithel. In second was Burton, and the winner was Sam Whaley. And that brings the point to... Well played. Uh, so the English uh, and the Scot uh, were on 94 points, uh, and the Aussies on 126. Oof. Oh, nice work. That's a little so bit of a thrashing. We might have to have a rematch, fellas. I believe a rematch... Well, I can't see the Red Mist accepting that and you know, not wanting a rematch. So hopefully the splashes too will be held. Looking. So there you go, the inaugural <laughs> splashes. 
I think next time we'll have a little bit more technology with, with faces and whatnot, though I'm glad we couldn't see Tom Slingsby when his internet cut out. He wouldn't have been a happy boy. <laughs> Tommy would have hated that, actually. Yeah, so now it's it's going to be a best of three series. Okay, yeah, the, you 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 don't reckon they'll be practicing as a result? I think I think the Australians <laughs> will have to practice. We actually had a race straight after we went off air, and I jumped on and and had a bit of a race with them, and so we might have to have a girls team as well. Absolutely, <laughs> I'm thinking. Now I have one more question for you. There's been so many comments. Most people saying where they were. Uh, what they were doing when you won the cup, lots of memories, how old they were. Uh, lots of people from the UK say hello as well from Cows. Great. Where you won an Etchell Worlds. Uh, yep. Yeah, so oh, I love Cows. It's beautiful. I'm really sad to miss Cows Week this year. So a shout out to everyone in the UK. I'm, it hasn't been cancelled, but I'm not sure I can actually travel over there. Uh, but the question is, and leading on from uh, your support of the Australian team there in the ashes or the splashes uh, have you thought about getting back into the america's cup or helping to build a team or sponsors that would have an australian backing yeah well you know i've done five america's cups over a 25 year period so i've sort of done everything um yeah. look i would be delighted to help if uh, i can uh, but you know in the in the pragmatic world of america's cup it's very simple no cash no splash so even with the best talent in the world and best designers and best sailors and so on on paper, unless you've got the bucks, then it's not going to happen. So these projects now are in the order of 100 million euro in Australian dollars, 180 million Australian dollars. So you can't, there's no financial model or sponsorship model that can underpin that except if you're a New Zealander where it's part of the national psyche. That and the All Blacks are, you know, on a, on a par. So you need a multi-billionaire that's worth probably at least 15 to $20 billion to be able to so-called write out a check for 100 mil and not worry about it. So that's the question is how many of these, yeah. <laughs> so the question is how many of those people are in Australia? Not many. Not many. So I think if, if it's going to happen, it'll happen with a, a new generation of entrepreneurs mm. and not the existing entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that we have in, in Australia at the moment. And part of our problem and this is the reality also, is we've won it. Mm. You know, we've climbed Everest. Mm. So these other countries, other than the US and, and, uh, and New Zealand, which is a different scenario, these other countries have never won it. So I, I'm not sure exactly what the, the, the catch cry of the British project is, but I think it's like bring, it, bring, bring the cup home or something like yeah. that. And that makes sense. You know, that's, mm. now we're talking about nationalism of, the, of, uh, of Britain, bring it home, and let's be the first to do it on behalf of, of Great Britain. We've already done it. That's, mm. that's so that when we talk about capturing people's imagination to, to lay out 100 million euro, you've got to have that passion as well. So that's part of the, it's part of the, uh, the challenge that we have uh, in this country. Not to say that someone won't come along, mm. but I don't see it in the short term. Mm. Talent, no problem you know, Tommy Slingsby and all of these characters, they're just absolutely fantastic. And the design expertise that we have is we spread our people all around the world. You know, people like Grant Simmer. Yes. Grunt, Grunter. I know that was one of the questions. Yeah, I had um, that there, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we, should, we, should, we should go over that, actually. Where is that question? Yeah. He's got more nicknames than anyone I know. 
Yeah. Well, Grant has done, I think, 10 or 11 America's Cups. The yes. amount of knowledge that that man has is just fantastic. And, he's and I think the... he was a young... Yeah, sorry. You he, well, he's the head of the British effort. And he has been for you know these other many of these other efforts, and so anyway, it's not a problem about talent uh, or experience. It's a matter of the cash. No cash, no splash. No cash, no splash. <laughs> yeah, that really makes sense. So we missed that question. I, I sent JB through a few questions before we started. So why did Grant Simmer have so many nicknames? Well, because he's a man of many talents, many <laughs> many characters. So uh, Grunter. Uh, because you know he's always down, he's always never happy. You know, mm -hmm. he's a highly competitive individual. Uh, Mad Dog, because he used to occasionally lose his temper, particularly when we're racing against Challenge Twelve and the, uh, the Victorian team. What leading into the we call it Blood on the Water, the Westpac series on Port Phillip Bay, which was really important part of our preparation. That uh, we nil we literally had to stop Grant leaping off Australia to onto Challenge Twelve to belt. The tactician, a guy called yeah, Frizzle wow. Freeman. <laughs> so he was Mad Dog Simmer after that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, all these nicknames. And uh, so, so uh, anyway, it's all part of the deal. Yeah, it is all part of the deal. <laughs> oh golly, and, Co and colourful man. Yeah, indeed. And then someone else I wanted to ask you about was um, was Kenny Beachel and how important yeah. he was. Oh yeah, Kenny was amazing. Mm. You know, Elvina Bay. So, and Kenny, funny bugger, like uh, one of the stories, well, first of all, he was fundamental to the program and he was in charge of maintenance for Australia too. But to round it out, to give a little bit more colour to the thing, Kenny at one stage was uh, had to go along to a court hearing and he was a witness to a speeding offence. Mm. And so the story goes is that Kenny was up in front of the judge and uh, the judge said to uh, Kenny, he said, you know, Mr. Bishal, uh, what did you see? Because he's there as a witness, he's a passenger in the car. And he said, Your Honour, I really couldn't see much, nor I didn't really understand or didn't know how fast we're going. He said, why? He says, because I was hanging on the roof at the time. <laughs> so, so that's Kenny Bishal, you know, that's the father of Colin. Another character. Oh. oh yeah, yeah. You got to have these characters. So, but um, Kenny, you know, in the tough times when our backs are to the wall, he was always there and had great. He built. Um, he worked for Bob Director, Director Boatyard in New York, and New Jersey, and they built a lot of the America's Cup boats, including Courageous. And Kenny was the was the uh, foreman for the Director Boatyard, and then he built. Uh, he built the boat. Uh, not sure what the name of it is. I should know, but they sailed it out. The whole Bishop family sailed it out from America to Australia and uh, set up the uh, the marina in Elvina Bay. It's where their home is now, yeah. the sacred home. We sent our two boys up there, school holidays, to toughen them up. <laughs> yeah, beautiful Perfect. stuff. Yeah. And it's it's amazing when you look at that. You, you said Colin. Colin sailed on the boat with you. He's won, yeah. a and now we can talk about the Etchels class. He's won a number of Etchels regattas. Your training partner, Ian, is current world champ. You've won yep. two. Uh, yep. It's an amazing class for that reason because Tiana, who I brought up here on the bottom of the screen, every week I'm educating her on on the legends that she's been sailing against since birth. Yeah, all these characters. That's right. All now these old I know guys. why it was so cool to beat you when we sometimes did. <laughs> <laughs> Tiana, um, 
I said to Chi, we're going to have JB on the show. And she went, oh, great, cool, yeah, I know him, da, da, da. And I went, do you know who he is? Do you want to Google it? <laughs> so that yeah, was fun. Well, yeah. Well, it's terrific, you know, and again, the, you know, the future of the class is, again, about the youth, mm. pollinating, cross-pollinating with the, all the experience in the class. And the reason I love and I continue selling the Etchells is it's by far it's the best racing in the country, by far. You know, any other type of sailing to me is boring because mm. you just don't have the same level of competitiveness as, as we do in the actual class and the quality of the people and this finesse and the, you know, just generally the, uh, the standard is just, it's just fantastic. It is beautiful. So, uh, and of course, you know, sailing against these young teams, these four men, four person teams is all part and parcel of the future. And I, th I think that's really a very, very important part of, you know, where we're going as an organization, as, a, as the class develops over the, over the time. They are beautiful to watch. And as you said, there's basically two different types of sailing. There's the sailing where you're developing and there's the sailing where it's literally the difference between the sailors and, and what's between their ears. Yeah, yeah, just tiny, tiny. So when you, you know, when you do well in, a, in an initial race and you feel you're going to feel pretty good about that. Indeed, you do. Well, JB, we've had you on the line for about an hour <laughs> we, we could continue all night, I'm sure, uh, hearing your beautiful stories and, and your memories. But again, I just want to re reiterate, it's not seven years that you've uh, served your country or inspired others. It's definitely been a lifetime. And for me, before I was born. So, Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much. And uh, what you're doing is terrific for the sport and terrific for sailing. And uh, as I said at the start of this uh, little interview, uh, you know, this whole online thing is just a game changer. So I think it's really, really exciting. It, it is amazing. I remember mm. when I saw you in Bermuda and we were talking then about technology and you'd just been to San Francisco, to Silicon Valley, and yep. and that captured your mind. And, and it's accelerating at an extreme rate. So, Well, well to give the viewers, a, we, we did a tour of Silicon Valley for Swimming Australia just to try and get a sense of really the technology push. And we spent a day at, uh, at Facebook with their mm. senior execs. Now, you, this is a really interesting data point. These senior execs, they said, if we hadn't have pivoted from the desktop to the handheld, uh, whenever it was, like seven years earlier, we wouldn't be a company now. We would be out of, yeah. out of we wouldn't be existing. And secondly, it, we believe, this, is the, this was only last year, the execs at Facebook believe that we're, we are, as a a, you know, as, as a civilization, are only tapping about five percent of the potential of the internet as we know it today. Wow, it's like the human brain. <laughs> yeah. So where we will be in ten, fifteen years, you just can't, uh, you know, can't imagine. But all we do know, a little bit like the Australia Two Vision, it will be much further advanced than what it is now. And I, that I find is really exciting. Don't you wish that we uh, had Ben Lexon around to give us a little bit of a push in one way or the other? He'd probably know what was going to happen. <laughs> he would love these New America's Cup boats. He would yeah. love them, for sure. That's absolutely phenomenal. Well, we're going to let you go. I'm just going to say a final thank you to the Australian National Maritime Museum and Sally Salmons for those beautiful pictures and also to the ABC for letting us show that footage, even though uh, he wasn't really on your side. <laughs> no, not, not a problem at all. Good on you. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Thank you so much, JB. Thank you, everybody. No Next week, we'll bring you someone. Well, I'm not sure how we're going to match up to JB, uh, but we will bring <laughs> you someone fabulous. <laughs>
and uh, we'll talk to you all soon. If I didn't get to ask you a question, I hope we answered it uh, along the way. And thank you for telling us all where you were when JB won the cup. Uh, definitely an amazing memory. We'll see you all. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.